Hello, folks. This is Ryan O., your program director at Radio Talking Book. Welcome to this special program for Veterans Day of 2023. We are excited to have in studio today three of our volunteers for Radio Talking Book who are also veterans. We have Dick Harrington. You hear him every Friday morning at 9.15 reading the Norfolk Daily News. We have Tom Vittenvoss. You hear him every other Saturday reading the Veterans Hour. And we have Bob Brown. You hear him every so often reading For Your Information. His favorite magazine is The Week. Gentlemen, welcome to our program. Thanks, Ryan. Thanks, Ryan. Thanks, Ryan. And we are just excited to have you here. I thought it would be kind of neat. Dick has done a few interviews for us before, and we run them every year. But I thought it would be fun, and Cammy definitely agreed with me. If we just sat down with the three of you, our listeners know your voices, they're familiar with you, and we heard about your service and your experiences as veterans. So I'll go ahead and just turn it over to you, Dick. I know you've done this before. And go ahead and just take it away, and, and I will jump in if I have any questions that I'm curious about. Okay, well, thanks, Ryan. It's a privilege to be here with Bob and and uh, Colonel Vitt here on my right, and Bob on my left. It's Tom. Let's get that Tom. started. Okay, Tom. Okay, we'll just call it Tom, Bob, and Dick. There you go. All right, so we're we're good what to a show. go. Yeah, quite a show, really. And uh, Ryan said I have done this. It's been a while, but uh, I did it with uh, some some vets that I knew. One of one of whom uh, I was just talking with Tom and and Bob about. Um, an old friend of mine, Jim Skye, and Jim was a World War II vet. Uh, none of us are that old, thank goodness, uh, I don't think. Nope. <laughs> no? No. No? No way. <laughs> yeah, and I'll just talk briefly about uh, my friend Jim. Uh, he passed away two years, about a year and a half ago. But Jim was a, and, and of course we're Veterans Day, and we'll get, uh, also get to the meaning of Veterans Day and that type of thing. But I just wanted to reminisce a bit about uh, Jim Skye. Jim was a uh, kind of a unique guy. He was in World War II, and he was a Korean War veteran and also Vietnam War veteran. And Jim uh, enlisted as a a youngster. Uh, he was out of uh, up. He was in uh, Minnesota, uh, back backwoods up in the deep part of Minnesota somewhere. And uh, at any rate, he uh, and the war, of course, war, war broke out. And I think he enlisted when he was about 17 or 18 years old in the Navy. And he served in the South Pacific on a seagoing tug. Hmm. So I don't know if you guys know any. Yeah. Yeah. And it, and uh, he spent a couple of year and a half, two years, something like that in the South Pacific. And he talked about how he sailed into Tokyo Bay when they dropped the bomb. I guess. His, yeah, so uh, he saw an awful lot of action and and uh, got out and then came back into the army and ended up in Korea. He was over there in the mud and the the sweat and everything and, and the cold and the cold, yeah. right? And he said he always told me a story. So well, I saw this guy in a kind of a clean looking uniform. I said, "Who's that?" And he said, "Well, it's some Air Force guy." He said, "Hmm." Well, those Air Force guys, you know, they were always flying over, so. Right, exactly. <laughs> so he joined up in the Air Force and uh, ended up spending 30 years. A great guy. Retired as a, as a chief master sergeant. He liked dedicated. that clean uniform. He, yeah. <laughs> he, he did. But to me, um, that Jim, when I think about Veterans Day, I think about him. I think about Jim. And a lot of my, of my friends, and I'm, I'm sure Bob does, and 
Absolutely. Tom does too. So, I mean, you can talk about the, uh, the meaning of Veterans Day and, and what it means to, to us now and uh, what it meant originally. And uh, originally it was uh, Armistice Day way back when. Right. right. So, Tom, you want to talk about Veterans Day? or? Well, I, I tell you what, I'd like to, if I could, uh, talk about my uh, father-in-law. Sure. He was a uh, chaplain, World War II. And, uh, you know, like most of the vets that you know, uh, very seldom want to talk about their experiences that they had during, during the actual combat that they were involved in or what their jobs were and things uh, during the war. But my father-in-law was a World War II chaplain, and he was uh, assigned to a Norwegian infantry division, and they wow. were responsible for <clears throat> taking care of the railroad system after the Allies had uh, gone through and, and freed up some of the, uh, the territory. Then this, uh, this Norway division would go in and repair the railroads and, and get them back to working order. So he was a part of that action, and in, in, that, in that action he got involved with uh, the Ardennes forest, mm -hmm. and most importantly, uh, he mm -hmm. was in the Battle of the Bulge. Well, we knew about that. My my wife and I knew that he had been there and been a part of the Battle of the Bulge, but never realized uh, some of the things that he had been involved in because he never talked about it. One of the things he had uh, as a part of his uh, uh, Army uh, memorabilia, he had a, a Purple Heart. We knew that he had been in a Jeep accident. Uh, he'd had a landmine blown up, and he lost his driver during that Jeep accident. And that he had messed his mouth up a little bit in that, but he had survived the accident. And so we kind of thought, well, that's where his Purple Heart came from. And we found out later when I was going and actually read the citation mm -hmm. that he received a shrapnel wound while tending to uh, people who had been injured on the battlefield. So something mm -hmm. he never really ever talked about. And the other thing that he, that he had uh, that I thought was really interesting, and just all of a sudden one day, he started talking about, uh, uh, I'm trying to think of the, of the prisoner of war camp, uh, Bergen-Belsen, mm -hmm. uh, prisoner of war camp. He was in Bergen-Belsen the second day after it had been Liberate, freed, liberated. Had been li liberated. In concentration camp. And in the process of all that, later on, they had had some trials, mm -hmm. and he administered to the German prisoner guards. Wow, that's pretty. That's pretty. Administered to them as they were getting ready, stuff. ready yeah. to be hung for yeah. their, their crimes that they had done. So all of that, you know, he had this in his mind. But as a as a veteran of World War II, I know that he was always he was very pro he was very proud of his service time. Never talked much about it, but he could tell he was deeply proud of it, and he was deeply proud as a veteran to be be involved in that kind of activity. Amen. So, Bob, what do you think about... You know, Veterans my father-in-law was also an Army World War II, and uh, when I look at the memorabilia that I've seen from him, it's all from his Army time. And, you know, he did things after that, but his, uh, it, he was the proudest of the fact that he served his country. Uh, he was in the Aleutian Islands, uh, for most of that time, mm -hmm. talked about uh, those eight-mile marches that they used to do, the, just to keep them busy sometimes. But uh, he was—he was the proudest of, of everything in his life was being in the military. And 
I, you know, I, all of us, I think, probably got into the military to serve our country. Mm-hmm. And that's, as far as I'm concerned, that's the reason I went in. Uh, and I, in fact, I loved it. And I, I just stayed in a lot longer, if I, only in for four years. But I just stayed a lot longer. If it, I kept seeing all my buddies were getting divorced, that they were married. So I decided I didn't want to do that. <laughs> but Veterans Day is very important. Um, I run a uh, video program for our church that has all of the military people uh, mm. that belong to the to the church, and to set that up, I spent almost a year talking to different vets and getting their stories. And some of the some of the stories that mm. I got were really really interesting. One of the I think the most important one was a doctor who was in the Army, and he spent eight years in the Army, and then he got out, went to California and set up a practice and found out that he couldn't make a living as a doctor. So he went back in the Air Force, and he spent 25 years in the Air Force as a doctor. So all kinds of stories come out of a situation you have a lot. Like that. You have a lot of veterans in that you made this video of? I think I have 32 on our oh, list. Yeah. Uh, some of them have passed away now, but sure. But uh, you know, quite a few. That'd be pretty doggone interesting, and I'm sure that there's probably some other. I'm thinking of uh, one of the fellows that uh, um, I don't know if you're familiar with the Bellevue University Veteran Service Center. Yeah, know where it is. Yeah, well, Tom right. knows where it is. It's in it's in Bellevue on uh, Harbell Drive, right there. Cross, matter of fact, cross from the VA uh, clinic as they go up the hill. It's a little standalone building. But um, J.R. Richardson, who runs the Bellevue Veterans Service Center, he is doing uh, collecting veteran stories and videotaping them for posterity and, and so forth. So he'd probably like to talk to you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I just, that thought just came to my mind. But, you know, let me go back a sec to uh, what Tom was saying. Um, I was in Germany. Um, stay, that was my first overseas assignment, and that was in 1965. And I had the opportunity to do a couple of things where I visited some of the places that you talked about with your um, – it was your my father-in-law. 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 Uh, chaplain. Right, the chaplain. And uh, – we were stationed in Spangdalem, which was not too far, just a little bit south of the Ardennes Forest where the, the big breakthrough in the Battle of the Bulge and all that took place. And went to the Battle of the Bulge Museum mm. in in Belgium, which was uh, very interesting to see that. Um, to And you get a get a real feel for it when you're actually there and everything's in you know that language, those languages. And, of course, the museum, most of it was in English, but... Uh, um, all the artifacts you could see, and it made you feel, gave you a real feeling for what was going on. And then I also went to Munich, um, I think it was 67 maybe? any rate, while I was there, I was there for four years, and I went to the Dachau uh, concentration camp, uh, which, like you talked talk about Bergen-Belsen, and that was one of the most sobering things I've ever done in my life. Right. Was to actually, and they, they made it into a a remembrance uh, place, if you will. Right. To see how low people can get, you know, <laughs> how a, a civilization can get that 
that bad. So a uh, very sobering thing. And then there was a lot of good things I did there too. But some there was a couple of couple of things when I was in Germany to really bring back um, some of the uh, some of the memories about Veterans Day. And you know, and, and our the way I look at it, we kind of have our foot in a lot of different places and we can go back about that far and then up all now all the way through all the things that our veterans are doing today and uh, got our kind of got a foot in both ends absolutely so we're straddling a lot of history i even i even like to consider the fact that uh, even though i came in in, in 1963 obviously uh, the vietnam war was in progress mm-hmm. and uh, i was at midland college now it's midland university but uh, one of my good friends I played football with, his dad had served in the Air Force, and he just called me one day. He says, I'm going down to recruiter. He says, you want to come down with me? And I said, well, you know, I've got a draft board there in Fremont that's kind of looking hard at me, and maybe I ought to go down and see what's going on. And so I went down, and uh, Billy Barron was the recruiter, and he uh, showed us the books and said, here's some things to look at for where you might want to do and everything. Well, being a business major, I thought, well, you know, that's personnel, finance, sure, all those yeah. good good things, indoor kind of activity. Yeah. <laughs> and I get this call from Sergeant Barron, and he said, uh, he said, Tom, he says, come on down. He says, I've got your career assignment. He said, and I said, well, what is it? And he says, well, you better, you might want to come down. And I, I knew there was a something going on. Catch, yeah. So it ended up being aircraft maintenance, and sure. I couldn't have asked for a better opportunity to do that. But, sure. uh, you know, just... The, the fact that coming in in 1963 with only Vietnam there, we've had a couple of skirmishes since then that we've, mm-hmm. we've dealt with. Mm-hmm. But what I think I've been most proud about is the uh, Cold War mm-hmm. and the fact that we stood as a command. I, my, my major command was Strategic Air Command. Mm-hmm. Like I was telling Bob earlier, I'm sacumcised because I was in SAC all my entire career except for three years. And... Just worked in SAC with a nuclear deterrent, and I think for for the things that we did in Strategic Air Command over all of those years, built by General LeMay and and continued throughout the process, uh, I think we did well to hold everything together and keep things maybe going in the right direction. So even though it wasn't a a fighting war per se, uh, I think as a Cold War, I think we've, uh, the veterans that served during that period of time can be very proud of the fact that that we never had to use those weapons of mass amen. destructions. Amen. You know, amen. Yeah, you know, I came in at 62, so about the same time, and I remember I was in, I was age, a powered age, and my first assignment was SAC. What, what is age, Bob? Aerospace That's, ground equipment. There you go. Oh, yeah, thank you. Yeah, thank you for uh, <laughs> Well, yeah, for somebody in the audience may not yeah. understand. Yeah, well, we're, we're sitting here yakking away. <laughs> yeah, good thing about acronyms, because we can really get... Go crazy on those. Oh, yeah. Pretty wild, but yeah, aerospace ground equipment, which um, take care of all of the um, the ancillary equipment used to um, start, repair, and maintain airplanes. Absolutely, basically is what it is. You got uh, just talk real quickly, briefly about aerospace ground equipment. You get power units in uh, that uh, provide electricity and provide uh, substitute for a. Uh, an onboard uh, jet engine, and instead we have a powered jet engine in a in a, a big cart, if you will, a big, really big cart, and you p- 
take that hose and put it on the airplane, start it up, and boom, it starts the engines. And also you have things such as uh, hydraulic uh, test stands to, for hydraulic uh, troubleshooting on the airplane, air conditioners, heaters, etc. So that's what uh, aerospace ground equipment consists of. You could kind of say that without age, you don't fly. I kind of, can kind of say that. It's going to be really tough. Yeah, it'd be kind of tough to start a lot of those planes. There's no, they don't have propellers to spin around on them. So you don't want a hand crank on the side of the engine. To, correct, yeah. Like they used to have right, way, right, way back right. in the good old days. Yeah. Yeah, the first time I heard a gas turbine air compressor start up, I thought, wow, what is this? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So anyway, we're yakking away here, and I, I forgot where I was going with that. But um, I started. How old did you I, say you were? Uh, well, I was twenty-two oh. when I joined. Yeah, because I I'd been. Oh, where's that draft board? Where are they? Up? Okay, <laughs> they're real close now. Okay, you got me. I'm. Uh, I think I'll go over to the Air Force guy. I'll, I'll stay away from the Army guy, uh, and I'm so glad I did, for many many reasons. Uh, I I ended up making a career out of it, just like Tom did. Um, and there's things that kind of nudge you along the way to, to right. make you do these certain things. But uh, I was my I started to say my I was in SAC at my first Strategic Air Command, my first assignment, uh, talking Cold War in uh, California, Mather Air Force Base, which is in the Sacramento area, and we had uh, Chief Patterson was our he was the branch chief, and he was. One of the very well, he was in the first group of chiefs made in the Air Force, so a big, tall Texan, and he he was like God to us. And every morning we'd stand, stand, roll call, stand attention, call, you know, do your dress right dress every day inside the shop, and uh, then we'd do calisthenics in the shop. And this was Cold War stuff. Absolutely, this was Cold War. And then I remember we had. Uh, and we had some fellows there that had been in the service for, or been in the in the Air Force for, I don't know, 12, 14, 15 years, and they had three stripes, and they were <laughs> glad they had them. That's as far as they got. And and if they were lucky, they were going to get one more before they their 20 years uh, were fulfilled. And uh, But a good bunch of guys and good people, and that was Cold War. And then I went to Germany not very long after that. I went there in 1965, and the Cold War was a real thing there in Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so the Berlin Wall and all of that. I had the opportunity to go through Checkpoint Charlie. Yep. That's scary. It was uh, kind of funny, really, because um, they, they encouraged us Said, well, if you want to go to Berlin, da, da, yeah, we want you to. If you're there, and that, this is now within our our squadron there at, at Spangdahlem. It said, if you're in Germany and you're, or if you're in Berlin or, or Berlin rather, which uh, remember that Berlin was uh, within the East German confines, which is was a Russian sector. But Berlin itself was divided into four parts: the the uh, the French, the British, the American, and the Russians. So right. those four parts controlled controlled Berlin, and those four uh, parts controlled all of Germany as well. 
So you're in the Russian sector or the American sector of Germany or the British or the French and geographically, you know, different locations. So they said, well, if you're in Berlin, we want you to go through that Berlin Wall, wear your uniform when you're there, and exercise that right. And so a couple of us did. And we got on this, this tour bus with uh, tourists, and the East German Vopos, they called them, mm-hmm. they got on a, a you know, very harsh... Uh, asking for passports and so on and so forth, and they already told they t- our our leaders had told us uh, don't give them don't even respond to them just say you want to talk to a Russian, so we did we said Ruski Ruski, kein uh, Deutsch Ruski right and they didn't like that but they <laughs> <laughs> finally finally and then the the Russian so they went went back off the bus and they come back. And, and some Russian guy, uh, whatever he was, I don't know, a lieutenant or a sergeant, whatever, <laughs> and he was kind of smirking. And he just smirked at us. He says, yeah, go. Yeah. I'm the American. Go. Yeah. <laughs> he could care less. He was, he was chiding the, the East German guy. So that was kind of yeah. a little story there, Cold War stuff. But Tom's right about the, uh, the Cold War and... SAC, uh, Strategic Air Command. Strategic Air Command was all over the world then. Absolutely. The whole world. Uh, How many bases totally? I don't remember the number of bases. My My first assignment was at Homestead Air Force Base south of Miami. And we had uh, the last B-52H model to come off the Mm. production line. 61010, something like that. I remember the tail number. Well, something like that. But it was the last last B-52H to come off the uh, production line. That was in 1963. H models are still flying today (laughs) and are projected, based on what I've been reading lately, are projected to fly out for another 25 years incredible. with with new engines. They're yeah, going to re-engine the, re-engine the airplanes. That's incredible. Yeah. Yeah. SAC was all over the world back in those days. Bob, did you have any experience with with SAC at all? With just I was I was supposed to go to SAC when I was about to get out and they uh, let me out to go back to school so I didn't uh, ever actually get to SAC base. So. But how about how about uh, with Cold War? You remember situations with the Cold War and what was happening? Where were you, Hill? You said I was at Hill Mm -hmm. uh, for a couple of years. Mm -hmm. Uh, Really, not a lot of of Cold War activity. Uh, We were concentrated on just keeping the planes flying. For uh, mostly, they were doing uh, war games. Mm -hmm. You know. Okay. Uh, Got a chance to go to Canada because of that. They. We're flying into Canada for uh, temporary duty, and we spent three or four days in Canada because of that. I remember a story about uh, an air an air compressor, not an air compressor, uh, a heater, and the heaters were nothing more than a a lawnmower engine (laughs) with a uh, gas pump, heat exchanger, (laughs) and and a heat exchanger, and I went out to 
5 o'clock in the morning and started up the heater next to the aircraft so that the guys would be nice and warm inside the aircraft. And instead of running like it was supposed to, it started shooting flames out of the stack. (laughs) (laughs) So I ran over and yanked the unit, and there one you could pull around by hand, and uh, pulled it out away from the aircraft and then got it shut off. (laughs) That was a little scary. (laughs) What were the aircraft? Yeah, those you, things were, could be the very dangerous. You were working with one twenty threes. One twenty threes. Yeah, we had we had mostly E models. Uh, we had a couple of the one twenty three Ds, which had a really long wing, like the fifty two. Yeah. Not quite yeah. that size, but but they were, they were kind of funny to watch come land because the, the wing bounces down when they land. Recips I didn't, or I didn't even know they made one like that. One twenty threes. What were those? Recips or per- turbos? Or were they both? Gosh, I don't know. They were uh, they were recips, weren't? I know. I think they were turboprops. Oh, they were turbo turboprops. Yeah, I'm sure they were turbo. yeah, they were turboprops. Because I we we had them in Vietnam, um, so I, that's all out of one twenty threes there. Yeah. Yeah. How long you spent in Vietnam? I spent a year. I spent a year. You spent a year there, also, Bob. Where, when were you? When, when were you there? Sixty-seven. Okay. During Tet Offensive. Yeah, you were there during Tet. Yeah, that's when I, my first, first time I'd been shot at. <laughs> <laughs> where, was, where, where were you? I was well at that time. I was Da Nang. Okay. On a Thirty-day. Uh, I was really an interesting assignment that we had one lighting unit <clears throat> mm-hmm. from our, uh, from Fan Rang, that they took. To Da Nang, I'm not sure why. I don't get into that kind of stuff. <laughs> but they needed one of our guys to be there for one make, light unit. For one light unit, <laughs> one newfie. <laughs> and uh, so I, I, I got my turn to go up there for 30 days and uh, go out every day and start up the light sure. unit, make sure that it worked, and and change the oil and stuff like that. But one day while I was out on the uh, tarmac with uh, Lieutenant Mo. We were just walking along, shooting the breeze, and uh, somebody started firing at us from the top of the chow hall, no mm. less. And so we kind of tried to dig holes in the concrete and found out that didn't work very well. <laughs> and we worked our way back through the revetments back to the office. And then uh, I found out that, you know, it, we couldn't get a weapon so we could fire back unless we had a special weapons card. And so we couldn't do much about it. But they did uh, shoot the uh, Vietnamese that was shooting at us. Mm. Killed mm. him. But that was that was an interesting situation. Did you, uh, did you think that was an enlightening experience? <laughs> yeah. with That's scary. With, with the cart. Yeah. With your cart, with yeah. your light cart? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I really needed that light cart. That was the only place that I've ever been, uh, had rockets thrown at me. And, mm-hmm. I t- kind of took that personal. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Dick, where were you at in Vietnam? I was at uh, Bin Tui Air Base, which, um, mm. and that was in 1970. I got there in February of 1970. It was in the Delta. You know where that was, Bin yeah. Tui? Yeah. yeah it was da- and and it was a Vietnamese VNAF Air Base, so we were, had a small detachment there. And it kind of, a uh, couple of odd things happened just to get there. It, it flew out of um, Philadelphia, of all places. I had to fly down to Philadelphia and catch a plane there to go to <laughs> Vietnam. Interesting. Oh, yeah. Well, I, who, 
there's all kinds of crazy things happened during those days. And, and, uh, you know, then we flew up to, uh, Alaska and then to Shimia and then on over. And a guy, I mean, this was a chartered plane with like, I don't know, about eight or across something like that seats. And the guy sitting next to me and I stuck up a conversation with him and he was, and we're in uniform, of course, and he was a two striper and I just made uh, a tech sergeant. So I was, and, and I'm talking with him and his name is Jack Brame and he was from the Philadelphia area. I got talking and he was an age mechanic, <laughs> air, aerospace ground equipment. And I said, where are you going? He says, I'm going to Tonsonoot. I said, well, heck, that's where I'm going. <laughs> so, I mean, what's the, what's the odds of that? So we get to Tonsonoot after, you know, this long going through Alaska and what have you, and then have, cross all the way down th- through the Pacific and what have you. We get to, we get to uh, Saigon, Tonsonoot, get some new uniforms changed, got some f- new f- jungle fatigues and all that kind of thing. At place, stayed in the barracks that night. The next day we're... There were a whole bunch of us that were all clearing in. I got a great big, uh, like a hangar, and we're, lay- we're sitting at these tables, and you know, blah, 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 and this guy gets up and says this, somebody else this, and, you, you know, the whole thing's going to take an hour or two. And just towards the end of it, uh, one guy gets up, uh, some sergeant gets up there, and he says, Oh, attention, he says, uh, following people, disregard all this and go to the, the back of the... And, <laughs> And it was myself and Jack Brame, <laughs> the two of us. So we go back there and say, what's this? All? Well, you guys are going to Bintui. Um, we need a couple of age. There was no aerospace ground equipment, no age mechanics there. So they, and they had, you know, some power units and light carts and that type of thing. So you guys are just, disregard all this. Um, your orders will follow you. Just go on down to Bintui. Go over to base ops and catch a hop. Wow. Yeah. So we did. Really? We're, we're, it's over that way. <laughs> yeah, it's over there. Yeah. Go on. To, well, you know how that crazy stuff yeah. was. So we did. And But the kid that was sitting next to me on that airplane, the two of us ended up at Bintui Air Base. Yeah, that was a – and uh, at any rate, that was in 1970. You were so there for a year? I was there for a year. Wow. Yep. Well, I was at uh, Fan Rang. Uh, I was – Working the night shift, and uh, the other guy that was with me were both three stripers, and uh, it was the time for the uh, the big show of the year, and Bob Hope was coming, mm. and so the sergeant, sergeant uh, master sergeant said, uh, "Well, you guys take care of the night shift. Everybody else is going to go to the show," mm. and we said, "Okay, that's fine. <laughs> That'd be good." And we had hardly any work in the night shift. I mean, we were not doing much. And the other guy said, uh, watch shop. You go to the show. So I got a ride and went to the show. Great show. Really enjoyed it. Got back. And next morning, I come by the shop and see how things are going on. Major says, you weren't supposed to go to the show last night. I said, well, yeah, <laughs> Joe took care of it. And uh, he said, well, tell you what, you're no longer in the shop. Ooh, okay. Oh, man. Well, what am I? He said, you're now in quality control. Ooh. <laughs> so he moved to quality control. I couldn't have a nicer guy. <laughs> Put on the black hat. Yeah. 
Yeah, right. So I got to go inspect all the units <laughs> that he fixed, <laughs> which is kind of fun, which led to a, a, another interesting experiment. While I was in quality control, they, of course, every time there's a plane that's worked on, the, the pilots that are in quality control have to fly that plane to see if it's okay. Right. So this captain came over to me one day and he said, I need a ride along. Come with me. So he takes me out and we're flying this 123 and he's taking it down along the, the ground as close to the river as he can get. <laughs> Scared me to death. <laughs> but it was quite an experience. It was, it was fun. That was cool. Absolutely. Yeah, a lot, of, a lot of good things happened. <laughs> Let me ask you, when you said you went to the Bob Hope show, uh, it wasn't Bob Hope that you went to see, was it? It was Ann Margaret, wasn't it? <laughs> I, I, I thought I went to see Bob. Maybe no. I went to see Ann. I don't know. <laughs> there were a couple of good comedians there, too. Yes, there were. Absolutely. Yeah. Jerry Colonna. Jerry Colonna was one of them, yeah. Yeah, yeah that, you know, Bob Hope did a really great thing for us. I was... Uh, yeah, he did for... I did. I didn't make Vietnam. Uh, I was working for Strategic Airs Command, as we talked about before, and SAC had a unit over there at Utapau, Thailand, mm -hmm. oh, yeah. called 4258 Stratwing, and we had B-52D models and KC-135s. And our mission over there, of course, obviously was Iron Bomb mission. And we, for, for a year, I was there from 68 to 69, I worked mm -hmm. in a place called Job Control, so we built mm -hmm. we built uh, what we used to call ball games. And of course, all mm -hmm. the senior senior officers on the base they couldn't stand the term ball games. You had to call them missions, and so mm -hmm. we called them missions. But every every four hours for three hundred and sixty five days of that year, every four hours we flew and launched six B fifty twos fully loaded wow. with iron bombs. Mm -hmm. Every six, every four hours, we launched six aircraft. It's a lot of ball games. We missed <laughs> yeah, a lot, a lot of, ball of ball games. A lot of extra innings. We missed, we missed one ball game. Mm. We had an aircraft on takeoff, roll, and it was heavy downpour where he started. Mm. And a D model, and he's going down the runway, and he couldn't get S1 speed, and so he aborted his, his takeoff. He boarded it so late on the runway that he coasted off. He popped his chute. He coasted went off the runway at the at the end of the runway off to the side and in the process kind of split the wing a little bit. Fuel fell down and caught on the brakes fire. So he had a full fire going on this B-52D model and eventually it cooked the weapons that we had on the airplane wow. and the airplane totally blew up wow. into mm. pieces that were like 50 cent size pieces all over the base and all over the runway and everything else. Uh, that process, we lost one ball game after that we weren't able to launch because of trying to clean up the mess and everything mm -hmm. but then we were right back at it four hours is all, it all you lost four hours is all we lost mm -hmm. out of it got our next mission going mm -hmm. and on the way so yeah you talk about it that's the kind of thing that guys today that doesn't even it wouldn't even comprehend yeah you know oh my god well what are we going to do but that's one of the things that uh, comes to my mind is um Especially in a place like Utapau in Thailand or, or uh, Phan Rang or Bintui in Vietnam. Yeah, right, exactly. The, the way you just you adapt to do, do make Absolutely. do with what has to be done. Absolutely. Make it work. Make it work. Right. It was, it was more that way overseas than it was at home. 
At know, home, at home, you had tech data, and you had to follow the tech data, and you had to be right. You know, pretty much, especially in the nuclear weapons business, you had to be very cognizant of what you were doing, loading and taking care of the munitions and stuff like that. <laughs> yeah. Overseas, iron bombs and those kinds of things. We saw some things that the guys, the GIs, did to make things work. We that, did. That even goes back to World War II and and sure. earlier. You know sure. what what they used to do. One of the things that we did there at Bintui. I mean, people just, they say, you did what? <laughs> and and we had uh-huh. some, and we had some inspectors come in from, uh, I, think, I think it's 13th Air Force, was at uh, Clark Air Base. Oh, yeah. And we fell under them. They came in and they said, you're doing what? <laughs> and they fired the, the, uh, <laughs> the guy who was running transit maintenance and put me in charge after he got fired because I was the next ranking guy. <laughs> I said, yeah, you want me to do what now? Okay. Right. But what we had to do, um, our, our mission there was uh, the uh, the VNAF had their mission. They had these little A-38s, and they went in out and dropped these little 250-pound bombs. Well, no, and but our mission was to have C-130s primarily come in at night, and that's a bigger airplane, of course, and unload food and and ammunition and fuel. And we also had flatbeds coming up from the Bintui port, Navy port, and, and they were loaded up with fuel and, and barrels of fuel and, and uh, pallets of food and ammunition. And then all do that during the, uh, during the day. And during the day, we had C-123s and caribou C-7s and, and you get some C-47. You get all these mix of airplanes that would come in. And mostly the little caribous would come in, and we'd load them up, and they'd go out to the fire bases and drop off a, a pallet of ammunition and a barrel of fuel, that type of thing. And the ramp was very small, our parking ramp to park airplanes. So we had to bring them in, and their wings would go over our little shack that we had out there, which is against <laughs> all, all things you're supposed to do. And we'd park them wing over wing. You know, one mm. little wing we park mm. here, the big wing we park over, here. Over above, yeah. Over and above, which um, they didn't like. No. <laughs> You're not supposed to. Well, we did it because we had to. Absolutely. And the mission got done, and nobody got hurt. We didn't have any accidents um, until, well, still didn't have, never had any accidents. But the these <laughs> these guys come in from 13th Air Force and, Oh, my God. And they had these brand-new fatigues on, of course. Sure. You can't do that. And they fired the guy. You know, Weiniger was his name. I forget his first name. Last name was Weiniger, Tech Sergeant Weiniger. I always remember as, as an aircraft maintenance officer that uh, I, my thoughts always go to the GIs, mm-hmm. the, the crew chiefs, mm-hmm. the guys in the field maintenance, avionics maintenance, mm-hmm. munitions maintenance squadrons, the, the GIs that worked on the airplanes took care of them, made them go. It always amazed me. I, I remember the crew chiefs especially. They, You know, you'd go out, these young kids, 22, 23-year-old mm-hmm. kids, managing a multi-million dollar airplane. Yep. And they're, they're, they're there every day. And when I was stationed, like I was ta- talking to Bob before we started a program, that I was stationed at Grand Forks, North Dakota. And uh, we had a couple of cold days up there. <laughs> and I can remember... Uh, sure. 
talking to the crew chiefs out on, in the early morning out on the flight line. And it's just, it's like 30 below zero. The wind chill is maybe at 60 below. He's out there and he's parking mucklucks and all of that. Has a launch to do on an, on an airplane. And you go talk to these guys and you'd say, well, why, you know, what is it that's making you do this? And nine times out of ten, it was always, you know, because I'm proud of who I am and I'm an American and I'm working here on the flight line, you know. They just, they, they kind of didn't even think about that until you kind of asked them about it. Mm-hmm. It was just something they were doing. But young kids like that. I got to tell a story. I'm at Ellsworth Air Force Base. The Iron Curtain had come down, and we were having a visit with the military attaches from the used-to-be countries that were behind the Iron Curtain, like Poland, Czechoslovakia, those, those countries. And there was air attaches came in on a visit. The lead officer in this group of cadre was officers was a Russian general that was mm. with them. Mm. And they were touring Ellsworth Air Force Base. They came on the flight line, and we're talking, and I'm explaining to them about the crew chief and his responsibilities on the airplane and everything. And they were asking some questions, and one of the, one of the attaches asked, well, what, did it, what does this young airman do when he's done? And I said, well, ask him. You know? and so he asked the airman, and the airman says, well, I go home. And he says, well, where's home? And he says, well, it's off base. He says, I drive off. I go down, and I have a family down there, wife and, and a child. And just after that, this Russian general says, you mean you let them go off base and go home? And I said, well, what's wrong with that? You know, and it, yeah. he, he couldn't understand how a young airman like that, dedicated, would leave the base, go home, and then the next day would come back and show up for work kind of says something about our society and the things we do as veterans right. in, in the military. Right. And I, I don't know if the Russian general said some anything at all, or maybe he just was so flabbergasted thinking about a young airman with nobody else. He's in charge. Right. He's a, he, it's his, yeah, it's, it's his it's, decision. He's, he's responsible for that airplane. Right. Right. But that's his. Oh. Right. You know, people make the make the right choice most cases. Bob, you, you, and, you and Dick have been, were young at one point in time, and you were doing that sort of thing. What, what spurred you on? What kept you coming out every day to work and, and going out there sometimes in some extremely bad weather to kind of make things happen? I think it, I think it was the fact that, that I've always felt that if I had a job to do, I should do it to the very best of my ability. That was what my dad taught me. Yeah, and he didn't care what it was. If you're going to do it, do it your very best. And uh, the best way to do a job is to be there when you're supposed to be there, and work hard while you're there, and then you can uh, go home later on. Yeah, and the and the other thing with me and thinking back, um, like when I was at Mayther Air Force Base and then in Germany as a young 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 trooper there. Uh, two, three striper. Uh, they were. That was. We, we had. A, we were a team. You know, there, there was a team. It was our group, our team, and this is what we did. And by God, we're going to do it right and and um, make sure that things work properly and 
And we went, a lot of cases, we, I'll never forget, we're in Germany. And uh, we got these newfangled um, piece of equipment called an M32A-60. <laughs> I don't know if you guys remember that thing, but it was a... Like a generator set. It was a generator set powered by a gas turbine engine, by a, a jet engine. Yep. And there was a tech order for it, and the tech order had... Number it was pages. okay, but we figured out how to make that thing work. Absolutely. We figured out how to make, I'll never forget this guy named Sandy Sanderson. Sandy was a, Sandy was a staff sergeant, 20-year staff sergeant. And uh, Sandy was, a, he was from Iowa, I remember that. He was from Iowa, and, and he was a, just an old farm boy and country boy, and, and uh, uh, you know, but a good, hard-working man. Like to drink his beer, but by God, he was there at roll call we had every day, you know, and, and Sandy was just had a this really marvelous mechanical ability and had problems with these jet engine on, and, and they would shut down because it, the temperature reached, a, you know, too high of a degree. Right. And we had, like, thermocouples. And you could shim them, but the the tech order kind of yeah. it was way that that was depot stuff. No, Sh- shim hey, wasn't a word in the tech well, order. No, that's not in the tech order. <laughs> we figured it out. Sandy be out there, and, and you know, you, you just, whatever your shift was over with. I mean, heck, he'd be there two, three, four hours past his shift, you know, and and a bunch of us there with him, and 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 that's just how we worked. Figured things out, and we worked as a team, and it was our mission our job to do those types of things so that's the way i you know as a young guy that's the way i thought of it i remember at one time when i was at hiller hiller fourth base uh in the shop we had uh a split crew we had a day crew and a night crew and i got on the night crew and uh we were assigned uh an engine change on an ma1 mm-hmm. uh air uh, um, generator set and so when we got to work, we started right off, and we had it all done before our shift was over. And and so the next morning, uh, I got called by the sergeant saying, uh, did you guys finish that engine last night? And we said, yeah, it's all done. He said, well, you can't do that. I said, what? <laughs> he said, well, the tech order says you have 13 hours to change that, <laughs> and you did it in seven, and that's not going to work. So you got to come in and change that paperwork. So we had to go in and change the paperwork to 13 hours so it would match up with the tech order. Wow, that's crazy stuff. Yeah. Never know. After that, I started working uh, in the office taking care of the tech orders. <laughs> that was a better job. Yeah. Um, and I'm sure you, you had, a, um, any, any other, uh, people that you, you work with one, one, and, and, and Tom knows this guy, a good friend of mine, his name is Denny Hahn. I'll tell hmm. a little story about Denny. Um, Denny's retired chief, just like, you know, my compadre and, uh, when I was at Bintui and I, as I mentioned, we, we'd load this stuff up and or unload from the one, uh, 130s and then load up caribou with C7s, a little C7 that come in, a twin-engine prop, and they can land in the parking lot just about and take yeah. off. 
Well, years later, I'm here now in in Nebraska in my church, and I come to run across this guy named Denny Hahn, and we become friends and blah, blah, blah. And we talk about one thing and another, and he says, oh, yeah, I was in Vietnam. Where were you at? Well, I said, what would you do, Denny? Well, I flew caribous. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, he, or he flew in. He was a crew chief. He said, I was a crew chief on caribous and wherever he's stationed. I forget where he's stationed at. Um, he said, but we used to fly in Bintui all the time. I said, really? <laughs> <laughs> so, and I said, when were you there? Well, I was 69 and 70. Okay. So. That's a small world. Yeah, a small world. So, so small. Yeah. Yes, it is a small world. I mean, there's so many things you could talk about. When it's small world, I tell people this one. I mean, it's kind of off-duty time. Uh, we used to go to, when we were in uh, Spangdalem, Germany, um, occasionally we'd go up to Amsterdam. Mm. You know, mm. and you could uh, you could drive up or we'd catch a train up there. And Be careful about what you talk about in Amsterdam because <laughs> I'm familiar with that city. Okay. Well, this is uh, this is not that part of Amsterdam. Oh, okay. But it's, it's kind of on the on you're the two, fringe. You're two or three blocks over. From... Uh, two or three blocks over. Okay. Got place it. called the Newbridge Hotel. Ah. <laughs> and the Newbridge Hotel is a nice place. I stayed there. You know, a very small little room. Who cared? You know, this place is. <laughs> yeah, you're not gonna do anything in the room. Right. And they had a bar there, and oh, in the bar one night, drinking some uh, some uh, some Dutch beer, some Amstel or Heineken, and chatting up some some of the local folks, and there's a couple of young ladies there. So I started talking with these young ladies, blah, blah, blah. Well, it turned out they're Americans, and they're, they're in Amsterdam on a visitor's. You figured that out because they spoke English? <laughs> <laughs> well, they told us. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, all, all the Dutch all speak English, of oh, course. Oh, okay. Yeah, they do. They, uh, they learn English, um, I think, I don't know, back then they learned to start learning about the third grade, I think. Hmm. But um, at any rate, he's talking to this, uh, these two young ladies, and where are you from, Bubba? You know how that conversation started going. Well, they're from my neck of the woods back in the greater Boston area. And turned out, you know, so-and-so, so David Harrington? Yeah, I used to go out. I went out with him, my brother. Your brother <laughs> went out with one of these young ladies. Oh my goodness! So that's small little, world. Yeah, small world type small thing. Small world. Yeah. yeah, you can run into all kinds of crazy things in the world, I guess. But uh, that was just one little. You brought up you brought up ladies, mm-hmm. women. Uh, when I came in the Air Force in '63, in my career field, aircraft maintenance, we had no ladies, had no women in in our mm-hmm. career fields. There were some administrative folks, but no, nobody in the hardcore maintenance side of the house, the crew chiefs, the people in field maintenance and avionics that fixed the airplanes weren't involved. But at a point in time, the Air Force saw fit, and I thought rightly so, to start bringing ladies into the uh, aircraft maintenance business. And I do remember there were, in those days, a lot of uh, chief master sergeants, old, and some even some old colonels that really were kind of against that particular initiative that was going on yep. and fought it. You know, I, th- I always called them the brown shoe guys because they were back in the World War II days. But, you know, there were some that still took that, and, and we worked with the ladies and got them involved in the mission. Mm-hmm. And I think today uh, the Air Force, personally, I think today the Air Force is better for that 
having that opportunity to have uh, the females, the, the young women, working side by side with young men in the business. I remember a story when I was at, I was in Okinawa, 376th Strat Wing. We had KC-135s. We had KC-135Q uh, models, which serviced an SR-71. And we had RC-135s, a recce business, worked out of Okinawa. And we had a crew chief on an RC-135 that was a young female. And she was like about five foot two and was having trouble if to get into the RC-135 was like a KC-135. You had a door. There was a hatch mm -hmm. that you had to reach. There was a handle you had to reach on the side of the fuselage and throw that handle up to get the, the hatch door to fall down so that you could get the ladder down and climb up. Well, she was so short that she couldn't reach that handle. <laughs> you know what she did? She got herself a little three-step ladder and had that ladder with her. When she took her toolbox on the, on the trailer and they, they went out, she always had that ladder with her. And she could go up and down that ladder, get that hatch open and, and work. And the crews, the air crews on those RC-135s, they fell in love with her because she was working. She was hard worker. Sure. She was very serious sure. at her job, yeah. and she could she could handle the things just like a guy could. And I thought that was really cool that uh, she was able to to manage through that. There were mm -hmm. some that didn't do that sort of thing, but this young lady did, and I've always been impressed with that that initiative that she showed. Yeah, I I, I agree. You know, I, I there it seemed like it took a little. There was a, a few little bumps along the road with with some uh, give and take, right. And uh, but it worked, and and it it it's it, we're better for it today, you know. And and to digress, a, not a lot, but a little bit. Um, I volunteer at the VA hospital, and I see now I see a lot of women veterans, lots of them in there. These are good people have done yeoman's work, right? In all the branches of the service, yep. and and uh, I I you know it's. If you're gonna if you're gonna live in the real world, then you're not gonna. That, right. That's what we need to do. Just recognize that fact. So, I agree with you. One of the things I remember about being in the Air Force was the fact that it it, it seemed like everybody took it serious that they were a part of the team, and everybody was going to do their job, and they didn't worry about you doing your job. They expected you to do your job. We hauled mm -hmm. aircraft uh, equipment out to the aircraft. Uh, you know, they were glad to have it, and when they were through with it, they gave us a call and we came and got it. And it was, you know, it worked uh, worked really well. I, I I liked working as a team. I like that the teamwork business, and I, I agree with hundred percent with that. You know, the all the bases that I was assigned to and, and the uh, jobs that I had, it was always a, a teamwork effort to get. You always had a mission. There was always something. Right there for you to do to accomplish uh even in the old sack days when i first came in we had command management system mm -hmm. cms and you had to have on on time takeoffs were essential you know everything had to be on time if it wasn't then it counted against you and statistically if it didn't look good on the on the ouija boards up at uh, sack headquarters down in the basement when the four star looked at them and uh, you were the wing commander was getting phone calls I talk because uh, I, I retrained after eleven years. I had to retrain. They were going to retrain me involuntarily, <laughs> and 
I had, had made master sergeant, and uh, there I was going to become a security policeman out on the flight line, which we need. Absolutely. And I said, well, you know, maybe I, there's some other things that might appeal to me a little bit better or more. <laughs> so I became an analyst and eventually ended up at SAC headquarters and talk about the Ouija board and the Fort Star Generals and the late takeoffs and all that. And we prepared all those gleaned in all the information from all the various SAC bases around the world and put them on what we call uh, uh, slides, which were uh, view graph things, and you put them on a projector and flimsies. it shows flimsies, and it it uh, shows up on the, on the wall. And and we went through that every every that every month. You'd, we did that with all these, the good and the bad and the ugly of the different <laughs> ones, who, who, who was good, who was bad, et cetera. And I'll never forget the first time I was at one where we had the four star, at the uh, commander of SAC and four star. All he cared about said, uh, "Only thing we want here is arrow up is good, <laughs> arrow down is bad, green is good, red is bad." I don't want any more than that. <laughs> to all the mountains of work that all these analysts had done and all these colonels and chiefs and everybody else looked at and huff sweated over and, my God, what are we going to tell the general? And that, blah, blah, blah. Up is good. Down yeah. is bad. Green, green is good. <laughs> Red is not. That's is it. Bad. That's it. <laughs> We're yeah. done. Sometimes Absolutely. simple is the best. Amen. <laughs> <laughs> So, I don't know. We, uh, I guess, I think I'm seeing Ryan O putting a headset on. Yeah. So maybe he's going to try and cut us off. Try well, and cut us off from our jabbering away here, like gentlemen. I asked you for an hour, and it's clear that you could go much longer. <laughs> um, I have one question I would like to pose for the three of you, and uh, if all or any of you want to answer it or not, that's fine. Um, I know it's kind of a somber way to end, but it, I'm genuinely curious. So. Two years ago, we left Afghanistan, and then six months after that, Russia invaded Ukraine. And now, just a few weeks ago, a conflict erupted again in the Middle East. Um, the jury's out on how much Iran had to do with it. And I can't think of China without getting very nervous. With that as a backdrop, where do you see our military heading in the next little while? Because to me, as a gentleman, uh, you know, a Gen Xer, it feels very perilous right now. Well, you want to take a run at it first, Tom? You want uh, me uh, to? I'm, I'd, I'd be glad to go. Go and I'll, I'll follow. Okay, uh, follow. I, I would say that um, our military, uh, a professional organization, we're fine. Um, we understand uh, globally the the situation there is in all these various places. Um, we don't want to get ourselves overextended, but if we have to, we will. And we have the most powerful military and the most capable military and the most professional military in the world. So um, from a military perspective, not a political one, but from a military perspective, I think we're A-OK. That's my view. Bob? I totally agree. Our, our military has always been the very best prepared in the world, and they always will be. 
I think that uh, on my side of the house, uh, I, I agree with what uh, Dick and Bob are saying in that in that arena. One of the best, if not the best, military. But the flags up on top of the flagpole, and to keep it up there, you've got to do some work. And I think right now, with what we're seeing in uh, this day and age, the younger generations uh, and their commitments to something is causing me a little bit of concern. And there's been, over the last year or so, a reduction in recruiting. They've had had an issue, all the services, not just the Air Force, but all the services. I think maybe the Marines are the only one that are probably still holding their own. But the Army, uh, Air Force, Navy are all having some issues with recruitment. And if we don't, if we don't re- continue to recruit uh, quality uh, individuals into the service, uh, some of that uh, top uh, drawer, uh, inform- or top drawer situations that we have, where we're we're providing the best, uh, might be subject uh, to concern. Um, the countries that are out there, uh, we've had issues with those countries over all of the years. It seems like we. We have a tendency to kind of forget about it in a, in a peaceful environment, and it always seems to come back and, and, uh, and get us. And so we need to be vigilant with it. I remember at a point in time where I had an opportunity and was uh, spent a week and a half in China where I toured military bases in China with the Chinese military, the People's Liberation Army Air Force. Spent that week and week and a half actually with them where we looked at the, the capabilities and things that they had and everything seemed in those days, that was before Tiananmen Square had their massacre. Mm-hmm. Um, in those days, it looked like everything was going in the right direction. Now it looks like maybe it's, it's going in a different direction. So always have to be vigilant. You always have to be vigilant. And I think we found that out uh, prior to World War I and prior to World War II. Uh, and now we have a situation where uh, it could build and go in a different direction. So. Of course, that's a, from a political aspect a yeah. little bit. Yeah, yeah. yeah, it is. Right. Very much so. Yeah, politically, uh, different. I mean, I'd answer that question a little bit wax. differently to you that, that uh, we're just uh, asked by Ryan. But, uh, yeah, I mean, it's not like uh, we're going to say, or in my opinion, we're going to sit, sit, just sit back and say, oh, everything's fine. There's, there's nothing to worry about. But right now... Um, I don't think anybody really wants to really wants to take us on. No, nobody I don't wants think so. to screw militarily. Us. They, we have they know they we know have the right minds yeah, what, in the what, right places. What they're looking at is to I think uh, to bury us economically, do us in some other arenas other than other than the military. Right, and then now you're getting into all the political and right. economic and so on. And, so and that's forth. what a military man's not supposed to do. <laughs> is that well, right, Dick? Well, uh, <laughs> not necessarily. <laughs> But uh, yeah, n- not necessarily. Yeah, a, a military man, um, and we have. You know, I, I'm thinking of our, um, uh, like General Milley, who just retired. Right. And that man, I've really got some respect for him now. I mean, he was a he was a strong. He he looked to be a you know a good guy when he was the chief of staff, but. By God, I really respect that man now. Right, right. And and that to me is indicative of our military, the the way ninety nine percent of our military is. They're, granted, there's going to be some political animals in the military. There always are. Um, but 
in the military, hey, we're, I, I feel, I feel good about it. Um, granted, yes, I agree that uh, we got problems recruiting, and that's a, that's to me is a reflection of. Uh, now we can start talking about a lot of other things, but right? Our the the mindset of of the the youth in our country and the mindset of a, a lot of people in our country, but they're not faced with a. Uh, a real challenge right now, like some of the challenges that we were faced with when when we were youngsters ourselves. So, any rate, does that answer your question, Ryan? It does, and I really appreciate Dick. You're making a distinction between the military view versus the political view. Right. That was that was fascinating. And Tom, I really res- you know appreciated and all of you. I appreciated your thoughts. Okay. I'll give a shout out. The reason I asked the question, I've got a close friend uh, named Dana and her son, Brandon Bailey, is um, enlisted in the Navy right now. He's a young kid mm-hmm. and he's on a nuclear sub somewhere and his carrier group uh, has been dispatched to mm-hmm. the Middle East. So that's very much uppermost in my mind sure. these days. So let me give Brandon Bailey a shout out. Um, Amen. He's he's my bud and he's, he's a good kid and Dana's one of my closest friends. And so she's got a lot to worry about, but... We hope that he will be home sometime soon and that, that all will be well. But, gentlemen, I want to thank you so much for all of hey, your time could today. Could I, Ryan, real quick? Absolutely, I've got a shout-out to my granddaughter who is an intelligence. She's an airman in the Air Force, stationed at Shaw Air Force Base. She's in the intelligence community, so she is providing briefings, intelligence briefings at this point in time, and we're getting ready to go see her in November. Looking forward to that visit, so... In my family, the uh, service continues to be a part of the family and very very much uh, proud of what she's doing in uh, in the United States Air Force at this point in time. And I give a shout-out to my uh, three brothers, uh, two Air Force, one Navy, and two still alive, one, God bless them, gone. And all four of us were in during the Vietnam period, and uh, I'm looking at... Uh, I, I've got their names. I wrote their names, each one of them, in their service time and service on a on one of the uh, the um, girders that went up for the new new uh, uh, connection, new hospital addition at the VA hospital. Hmm. So, shout out to all of them. Bob, anyone you want to give a shout out to? <clears throat> I don't know a lot of military people today, other than the ones in my church. But we know this much, they serve because they love our country. Amen. Amen. Amen on that. I also would like to mention really quick that I know mental health has been in the conversation a lot Mm -hmm. lately. And um, I know the figure I hear is 22, I guess, 22 uh, veterans take their own lives every day. And I think it's worth very much just mentioning that uh, mental health is not only important in our general society, but in the military and the veteran Very populations so. as well. So with with talk of mass shootings and whatnot, I really hope anybody listening to this that is affected will um, make a note. And if you want to reach out to somebody here or at the VA or whatever, please, please do so. Ryan, you might note that a couple of things that I've read over the past couple of months have been about Be the One. It's a program that the American Legion magazine uh, talks about, Be the One. And they're talking specifically about what you just mentioned, and that is suicides in the military. 
by being the one, you are the one that can initiate the actions. You can see the individual. You can take the actions. There's plenty of help out there. All you need to do is make, be the one that identifies and gets that individual the help that that individual needs. Amen to that. Yeah. And, and if they're really in crisis uh, at any time, they can always just dial 988. Absolutely. 988. Gotcha. And they got the Veterans Crisis Line. And I know there are a lot of homeless people out there that have served, and that is, that's a tragedy, absolute tragedy. That Hey, that reminds me, um, says of November, thank you about the homeless because we're doing a, uh, I'm looking at, calling my calendar here for November, but at, the, uh, at UNO um, from 10 in the morning till 2 in the afternoon, at UNO and the student center there, it's the vet, it's uh, um, VA is sponsoring uh, homeless veterans stand down. Veterans can come in and they can get uh, boots, coats, um, cold weather gear, all brand new. Um, they get get checked out by the by the med by the docs and nurses there. They can get a haircut. Uh, all this done for them uh, if they and there's buses that will take them from different parts of town to UNO, and they're running shuttles, I think, from uh, Siena Francis House, Stevens Center, et cetera, to UNO on 17th of November, 10 in the, 10 in the morning till 2 in the afternoon. And then how about on Veterans Day, all of the, the agency or the uh, organizations in the, in the city that, like the High V, that have free breakfasts for vets, uh, restaurants that support that action, I, I, I really encourage the veterans in the community to take advantage of that. It's being offered. It's being offered in, in dead earnest. And uh, what, what better way to go and, and have breakfast and, and, again, like we've just done for an hour, talk about the— Shoot the bull. <laughs> shoot the bull and talk about the activities. Yes, and, and High V, if you haven't experienced it, it's a marvelous uh, time. You, you uh, meet other veterans, sit at different tables, and— get a, a nice meal, and the, and the folks at Hy-Vee love it. They absolutely love to do it. This year they're doing it on uh, Saturday the 10th rather than on the 11th. So I think that's out to the – uh Friday the 10th, excuse me, Friday the 10th rather than the 11th because 11th is a big shopping day for right. Hy-Vee, so they're doing right. it on the 10th this year, and they, I believe it's from 6 in the morning till 10. 10. So all Hy-Vees in the greater Omaha area. Great to know. Gentlemen, do you have any closing thoughts before we go? Just, Ryan, to you and the Radio Talking Book Service, thanks for allowing us this time. Absolutely. Yeah, you're, you do a marvelous job here. and uh, We're certainly glad to be a part of it. Absolutely. Well, it's, we're delighted perfect. to have you, and we're delighted. Uh, thank you so much, uh, Dick Harrington, Bob Brown, and Tom Vittenboss for all that you've given to our country. and. Thank you for the time you've given us today. Thanks for pronouncing my last name correctly. <laughs> hey, man, I'll just call you Vit. That's what I know. Colonel Vit is how we know you in our locks. So, gentlemen, it has been an absolute joy to listen to you converse. And this, this program was exactly what I was hoping for and you delivered. So thank you so much for being with us today. And this has been Ryan O. on Radio Talking Book with our special Veterans Day programming with Dick Harrington, Tom Vittenboss, and Bob Brown. We hope you've enjoyed it. Again, thank you to all who serve this country. And please stay tuned for our next program. I hope everyone has a happy and thoughtful Veterans Day.
Thank you for listening.